Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios, the envy of all broadcasters in America, the following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man right there, Howard Lapidus, manager of the star. Yeah, uh, that's correct. Well, I'll do a nice big shout-out uh, right away to Dan Zupanski of True Murder, who wrote the most wonderful, glowing review of our program. It's posted right on iTunes. It's the first thing you see is his, or maybe it's the second thing you see. Two rave reviews. Here's the, here's the question I have. Yeah. And, and you know I love Dan. I know you love Dan. But did he mention... Magic Matt Allen? Did he mention me? Well, probably not. He probably went for the old man. (laughs) Because he's so vulnerable. Yeah. (laughs) He talked about, though, he does. Well, I could look it up and read it to you if you want. You can go that far. Well, I am going to want, but it's not to stop today's show. Because this is to read the glowing review of of how we are the standard of the industry. Well, (laughs) we all know that, and we all know that we're the number one, and this is true, as you know, the, the number one true crime show. In audio. Yeah, in, in this room. No. No? Well, why do you do, why do, you do that? <laughs> well, well, because Dan has such a huge following. And Dad's got everything. a great following. Dan's a friend of the show. We're a friend of his show. Yes. But we're bigger than him, damn it. <laughs> okay, if you say. He does credit us with being the first, the foremost. Well, he's got a credit. Yeah, and, and look, and uh, you know our friends at the Guinness uh, Book of World Records and yeah. A-Track Tapes. So, yeah. so, you know, let's call a spade a shovel. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Take your pick. That, too. <laughs> I remember that routine. Three Stooges. Again with the Three Stooges. Yeah. Well, you know, as uh, Leonard Maltin so wisely said, yes. the world is divided into two groups, those who laugh at the Three Stooges and those who wonder why. Yeah, that's about that's right. covers it pretty much. Yeah. Then there are those who read Anthony M. DiStofano. And they're amazed the music guest, Gogan Thunderstruck. He is our guest. I know. He is our guest. the 900th time, but that's okay. Yeah, because he has 900 books. At least. And one coming out June 26th, you can advance order. We'll discuss that one in just a minute. There's nobody that I would rather talk about the mafia today. No, he's, he knows a lot about yeah, the I know. I don't know why they haven't shot him. Uh, Anthony. I'm here. He, there he is. Uh, Anthony, uh, Burrell was just uh, wondering why they haven't shot you. <laughs> Well, because I work out of police headquarters in the press room. They probably can't get any closer. (laughs) (laughs) A good question and a spectacular answer. Now, there was uh, one of our contemporaries uh, whose name always escapes me when I go to bring up this story, uh, who also writes about the mob, uh, and he does it in, in Philadelphia or Chicago or whatever. And there was a hit taken out on him. The journalist. And You're talking about George? Yes. What's his last uh, name? Uh, Anastasia. Yes, thank you. George yeah. Anastasia. Yeah. yeah, he told me that story one day when we were at a conference together. And he said that he found out there was a hit ticket out on him. Uh, yeah, you know, it was nothing personal. <laughs> but something else came up and so we didn't do it. Well, let me ask a real question, though, Anthony. Yeah. Would, would the mob do such a thing? I don't think so. You know, well, let me take that back. I think some low-level people who get angered over about something that may have been written, uh, who just are, you know, young bucks and, you know, hot-headed, might try to hurt some a journalist. But I really don't think today they would even bother. Uh, I just don't. Well, I think it's, Uh, uh, it's, 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 it gets in the way of business, in my opinion. 
Well, it does. And, you know, there, with uh, so little crime in New York City, for instance, uh, the cops would, uh, you know, have a lot of attention to play to something like that. So, you know, I don't I don't think it's much of a risk these days. Now, do the, it's uh, happened. It's happened. Yeah. Hey, Anthony. Duck. Okay. Yeah, duck. Yeah, duck. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, I'm yeah. sitting comfortable. <laughs> okay, it's, it's all right. You're, you're safe here. They can't see you on the radio. They can't get a good clear shot. <laughs> Now, you've been doing this for uh, longer than some people have been alive, especially people who are under the age of 30. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I started doing this in uh, 1976-77 when I was a young cub reporter at uh, what was Fairchild News Service, and we did a series on the garment industry in New York City for, of all things, Women's Wear Daily, and Ah. that really sort of shook people up. That industry had a big uh, presence of uh, the mafia for decades. Was it was it Gotti tied in a lot to that? Gotti, you know, Gotti had a presence in the garment district. He had a, he had basically a no show job at one of the trimming companies, and he probably did some loan sharking. But he really wasn't a major character uh, for much of his life until later on mm-hmm. uh, in the garment district. But he did have a presence. Mostly, it was uh, you know the Gambino crime family, the Lucchese crime family, and uh, you know a few others sprinkled about. But it was basically those two. Did he kind of carve out a niche? Like radio stations, you don't want to be a country station. The one's a rock station. Just go, we'll, we'll, we'll do the garment industry. You, you take the diamond district. <laughs> Anthony, pardon me for a second. Pearl, yeah. Did are you comparing <laughs> organized crime to broadcasting? Yeah, yeah. Okay, just check. Okay. So do they carve it up in niches like that? Like uh, we'll we'll be the garment district uh, boys, and you be the uh, diamond district, and you know that sort of thing. There, there. You know, the, traditionally there had been a carve out, uh, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't unheard of that. You know, one or more crime families could have a presence in, say, uh, the airports uh, or the or the docks or the garment industry. You know, they just had to sort of agree who was with whom in terms of the legitimate businesses or illegitimate businesses, who was going to get what and who was under the control of what. So, and that's where disputes would often arise, and that's where they'd have to uh, uh, have sit-downs to try to, to work this out. But it wasn't unheard of. It, it still isn't, you know. There's, uh, but they probably fight more over things today because the pickings are so small. Ah, it's not like the old days, huh? No, not at all. It's not like not they, they don't control the like for, for the sake of the audience... Give me both sides of this, the old days and now. You know, we're in, 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 I want to follow how the prosperity of the old days started to dry up to what we have now. Well, in the old days, and we're going back to the 30s yeah. uh, and 40s and whatever, um, you know, the labor unions were, were pretty tight with the mob. Uh, the mob had control over some of the labor leaders and uh, the unions. And uh, that was the lever that they could use. And a place like the garment industry, they had control over the trucking industry. It was basically a cartel where, you know, it would divide up the garment-producing shops among themselves, or who's going to truck for whom. So that was pretty lucrative. And, of course, in something like the garment industry or even any other industry, the uh, need for money, for cash on a, on a quick basis, uh, 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 was often, you know, paramount, and the companies would have to go to the manufacturers would have to go to a loan shark and get funding, and this is how they had the hooks. Uh, 
and there was a pretty lucrative racket, and the industry was lucrative at that time because it was pretty paramount in a place like New York City. Today, that's not so. A lot of the manufacturing's moved offshore. A lot of the factories are offshore. Uh, a lot of the production's offshore. So the industry basically is uh, into the fashion houses and uh, showrooms and, uh, you know, some local production in places like Chinatown and whatnot. But well, uh, it's not like hold, it was. Hold on a second. Like i got a question for you. If it's moved offshore, let's say if it's gone to China or it's gone to uh, Russia or wherever the heck it's going, mm -hmm. they have their own organized crime over there. Well, they do. I mean, but we don't know what's going on in China in terms of really, unlike we know here, we don't know what's going on over there. So uh, could it impact things over there? Sure. Uh, but uh, I'd be guessing to tell you uh, what it is. All we know is for sure what had gone on here. And we have pretty good uh, sense of it because we had so many characters and so many criminal cases and so many prosecutions, so we know what was what was going on. And uh, pretty much, when we wrote those stories back in the 70s, we were kind of like flying blind. We, we really getting stuff off the cuff from cops, uh, secret sources and whatnot. It turned out a lot of what we had written turned out to be true. Uh, true in the sense that the industry was controlled and the characters we thought who had control of it were the ones who had control. And uh, by golly, you know, uh, you know, you sit there and say, well, it's always good to be, uh, you know, proven right in your lifetime. And we were. We were. Was there a lot of cross-pollinating between these uh, the families? Like if, uh, if I want something done and uh, the, uh, the guy to, to do it actually is in another family, can I use him? Well, you could go, you could, you'd have to go through the family. You'd have to go through the boss of the other family or the captain, the guy's captain, uh, to work out some sort of arrangement. Uh, it's not unheard of. Uh, people did that. Uh, it, it wasn't something that happened a lot that we know of, but it, it could happen. It could have, some people did this off the record. They went to another family, and they would get in trouble for that. Um, uh, you know, I don't know what the consequence. Consequence could be, you know, light to severe, and you know what severe could be. There was a, a book. I, don't know, I can't recall the title of it. Uh, there's a particular fellow who was like in three families at once or something. It's really, really bizarre. <laughs> well, you know, some of these people, you know, did go between families. It's, it's you know, I've known of a couple of cases where people, you know, transferred uh, their affiliation. And it was done, you know, it was sort of done out front. They were given over to the other family or put under the other family. So it did happen. You know, you weren't wedded necessarily to one family for your lifetime. So you could, Some people didn't care. Some people didn't want to. They were associated with the mob, and they just didn't want to become a made member. Too much trouble. Yeah. Someone's going to shoot you. Someone's going to shoot you, or you're going to get arrested, or uh, you didn't like the characters you were really working with uh, uh, in the main. You didn't want to have any kind of tighter hold. You wanted to have a little bit more freedom, perhaps, to move around. Uh, so, you know. You're probably familiar with the story of Ken, uh, Kenji Gallo. Uh, who uh, uh, was uh, who, uh, for seven years was an informant for the uh, feds, and uh, he was working with he thought were jerks. <laughs> so 
Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is all like broadcasting. Yeah, I'm waiting for that. I see the parallel now. The, there was, you know, in, in the, particularly in, in, the, in the Gotti years, uh, there was somebody who was uh, so fed up with the, the debt that he was into with them that he decided to go over to the FBI and became a confidential informant. You know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, get his uh, uh, insurance, as it were, because he knew he wasn't going to be able to pay them off. At some point, so he, <laughs> he paid him off. <laughs> he was going to have to be paid off by somebody else uh, to get do, some protection. Do you recall? Because I don't, but maybe you do. The uh, the uh, mafia boss who was who was himself was the informant. <laughs> well, you, you know, you had um, uh, you know in the, in the, in the Colombo crime family. Uh, you know, you had. Uh, uh, that situation where, oh God, the name escapes me, but uh, I could just see his face in front of me. Uh, he, you know, he was informing for the FBI. Uh, Scarpa, Greg Scarpa. Uh, he was informing for the FBI uh, while he was controlling a wing of the crime family. And then, of course, there was, you know, people who subsequently got into trouble and got arrested and convicted and flipped. And, you know, in those cases, you have people like Joe Messino, who was the big boss in New York, uh, the highest-ranked boss to flip. And you had other acting bosses. See, there's a whole protocol here. Acting is kind of lower down the, the chain of status, mm. and they would flip. Uh, uh, so you had some cases like that. Um, but, you know, it, it's... Uh, well, was there a degree, of a degree of paranoia within the organizations when you don't know who's flipped and who hasn't? Oh, sure. I mean, it was a story of Vinnie Bassiano, who took over as a sort of street boss of the Bonanno family after Messino flipped. And he would have meetings of his captains, and he was so paranoid and worried about electronic surveillance that he would have the captains stripped down to their underwear when they went into meetings to make sure nobody was wired up. And that didn't sit well with some of the captains. They thought it was very demeaning. Yeah. Uh, but that shows you the length of the paranoia. And, of course, they don't, they don't meet, uh, uh, you know, they, they don't use the phone. Uh, they do, you know, if they're going to meet, they're going to meet at a place where they're sure of not being surveilled, uh, certainly with tapes or bugs or anything like that. Uh, you know, technology has really advanced, and it's made life more difficult for these guys to communicate. Uh, so it has to be done very, very carefully. Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's a rough situation. Uh, then you have guys that are uh, aren't really the boss. The boss is in prison, and he's calling the shots. Or you yeah. got former guys yeah. that are in the slammer that are are rats. <laughs> well, you also have situations like we have now, where in place in, with the with the Gambino crime family and the Bonanno crime family, and I, to some extent the Genovese crime family, where there's no one boss that's sitting controlling ordering things around and pulling the strings. It's like a committee of two or three well-regarded street bosses. And they sort of are the go-to people uh, for the rest of the families. And, you know, they run it like by committee, in a sense. But they have to do it very carefully uh, because they themselves are probably under parole supervision uh, or probation. And if they consort with... Uh, uh, you know, other known organized crime figures are going to be violated, violating of their uh, parole or probation, so they go right back into jail. So they have to be very careful. It's a different world today. 
Yeah, like, uh, they used to talk about the, uh, oh, we'll take care of you if you go to prison, we'll take care of your family. And, and uh, <laughs> it turns out that don't necessarily. That's true. I mean, that's true. What's happened is that, you know, as the reserve of money has dried up, uh, the rackets have really dried up, and these guys are sort of scraping, scraping around to, to make a buck. There's not that, there's not that lodestone, you know, to dip into to, to, to pay your people, to pay their families, to take care of people like they used to years ago. It just doesn't happen anymore. So people, you know, there's no retirement plan in the mafia. So if people, you know, get put away, uh, well, how are their families going to subsist? And how are they going to subsist when they get out of jail? So that's the incentive for some of these people to, you know, turn informant, become a cooperator. You'll get a stipend. You know, you'll maybe get relocated. And, uh, you know, at least you'll have something out of life. You know, I, I uh, was born and raised in Walla Walla, Washington. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the federal marshals had, you know, the witness protection program. And they were sending people to Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, the other uh, federal uh, agencies also had witness protection programs, and they didn't consult with each other on where they sent people. <laughs> and, oh, <sorry. laughs> and they were also sending people to Walla Walla, Washington. It's, it's like that movie, My Blue Heaven, right? Right, yeah. It's based on that. All these guys are winding up in the same small town. <laughs> oh, what are you doing? And they're all named Flanagan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And well, so that's well, that's the situation we had in Walla Walla. Where all of a sudden, these college guys are showing up. They go, hey! <laughs> all from different uh, mob families. All there were some sent by the marshals, some sent by, uh, you know, the uh, FBI. And uh, they they found ways of making money and, uh, you know, taking but, care uh, of But money for these guys, you know, uh, some of these people I've spoken to have been relocated or cooperating witnesses. You know, the jobs they were offered are getting, you know, they they weren't great. You know, they may have been, you know, in a department store or a drugstore or auto dealership, you know, they weren't, you know, great jobs. Um, uh, the exception, of course, was Sammy Gravano, who, you know, had his own construction company. He was out of the program. He was out, out in the open. And, of course, he then went into a drug situation where he subsequently got pinched and sent away. But he's now out, Sammy. He's out and about. You know, a lot of guys. What, what's, uh, what's he but, doing? Uh, I'm not entirely certain. I do know um, he's. Uh, uh, you know, I think he's probably thinking about some sort of movie deal. Um, that's my guess. His daughter Karen has a pizzeria in uh, you know, Totowa, New Jersey, and uh, uh, you know she was on the. Mob Wives series, and um, you know she's doing okay. Uh, but Sammy's out now. And, uh, how how old is he now? Oh, he's got to be in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. A lot a- of these guys who were paramount in the the eighties and the Gotti years, they are uh, if they're not dead, uh, are uh, you know they're in well into their seventies. And uh, in fact, Gotti's brother Gene just got out on a very long federal heroin rap, and he's out. And he's well into his 70s, as is John Carneglia, who's also nailed on the same heroin rap, and he's out. They served, I think, I think it was about 29 years altogether. And they're out now. 
they they got uh, they did their time under the old law, which was that you didn't have to serve the almost the entire length, and you, they cut it up different ways, and they're out. And everybody's watching to see what they do, whether they're going to, you know, fade away into the sunset, uh, or whether they're going to try to do anything uh, like they used to do. Which which I way? Guess, which way do you think it'll go? I think they're going to just stay low. Yeah. I think so. A guy like John Carniglia, uh, I think he had a lot of money in his life, and he could probably be just content to lead a lawful life and, you know, go to his home in Howard Beach or Florida, wherever he has a second home. And the same, I think, with Gene Gotti. I think uh, if they're smart, they'll just retire. Uh, and watch from the sidelines. And now, now what, what about the money? You know, did they? Did these guys get out of it with some money? I, I always hear they've all blown the money. Well, I don't. I think some of them are very smart and astute, and they had a lot of money. Joe Messino, he had millions in his house. He had millions of dollars. I, I would be. I would never leave my house if I had seven to ten million dollars in my house in bills stashed away. I would never leave. I'd be afraid, you know, somebody would break in or there'd be a fire. But he had millions of dollars when he was convicted in his house. So he stockpiled. Joe was very frugal in that sense, and he's very, you know, he had a lot of rackets and he had a lot of legitimate businesses. So he had a lot of money, and he had. Krugerrands, you had gold coins, you had property. So, and a lot of that evolved to his family because the wife was often the co-owner of some of the assets. Now, I think that's probably true with a lot of these other guys that their you know, their wives, you know, were either co-owners or sole owners of some of their assets. And the government didn't go after them way back when, so they've got it. It's all sort of theirs. I don't think they're going to be working, is what I mean. Well, it's difficult. If you're in the witness protection program, you've got no resume. <laughs> I just wonder yeah, if, these guys, if, if these guys are going to start driving for Uber or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, where's your history? you got a new Social Security number. Um, you know, an employer could probably sense that from the way the numbers are. And you have the work history. Uh, there may be certain employers who have deals with the federal government. To, to help these people, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. Uh, either you got to go into business for yourself or you got to be resigned to a, a life of living off whatever assets you had. Uh, you know, it's not like in the, like in, not like the old days. Ah, the old days, when we played the hits. <laughs> yeah. Well, it certainly isn't. That's, uh, you know, uh, Andrew DiDonato, uh, his book, uh, Escaping the Mob, uh, he says, it, you know, it's not like they told me it was going to be. <laughs> no, you know, we, look, we've had this romantic issue of the mafia, um, uh, you know, in part because of the movies and TV and, and some of the books. Uh, but it's really a tough life. Uh, and a lot of these guys are, you know, they're brokesters, as they call them. They don't have anything in the end. You know, they're scraping around. Some of them are on welfare. Some of them are, like, living... Uh, in transient housing. I knew one guy who's now dead. Uh, he wasn't a maid member, but he was living in SRO, single room occupancy places. They didn't have any money. Yeah, what did they do with all that 
when there's so much money that was supposedly, you know, doing this and this and this and this, and they got Hycox Palavinic, as my father would say. Well, they, they, you know, they, they didn't plan for the future. They, they got it. They spent it. The, the life required them to spend it. That was part of their status. And uh, uh, unless they were smart, and there were some smart ones, uh, they didn't have anything to look back on. And in the end, you know, when they see they get saddled with prison terms and there's nobody taking care of their families, they realize that sort of you got put, their, uh, put their, you know, hope in a false god. Yeah. It's a tough life. It's a tough life, believe me. That's uh, that's why I would want to be wed wed to it, married to it, where you're made man. Like, no, you, you just want to stay in radio. That's just, yeah, same stay difference. Stay in radio. You yeah. got to shoot you anyway, either yeah. way. Oh, those shoes. <laughs> uh, you know, my moment of realization about radio probably would have been the same if I had been in the mob. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, pardon the story. Uh, no, <laughs> but, I, I, you can go out, out, in and out of the door when you want to. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that uh, the, the ratings had just come out, which I guess is an, an important thing, you know. And I, I was, uh, today, you're, if you're doing real well, if you got like a four share or a 3.5 or something, I had a 19. So, Very good. <laughs> so the. Uh, That's astronomical. Yeah. What the, is it, seven? Seventy-five bucks you owe me. Yeah, you'll get this. Yeah. I was back in the 1970s yeah. when I was in the mob. <laughs> I was playing the hits. So the sales department is in the back room with bottles of champagne, popping corks, right? And come out and they put their arms around me and say, Burl, congratulations. We're giving you a $1,000 a year raise. <laughs> and that so was, was like 19, 19 share on like web radio or is it like radio? No, that radio? was radio radio in, in the city. You know, that's what... Uh, Okay. And uh, now they got a four. They're excited. Uh, was it Wally Nelskog at one time had a 53 share? <laughs> so that's when you wow. own the town. <laughs> yeah, that's the real the radio in town is listening to him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when they said a $1,000 a year raise, that was my epiphany. <laughs> I okay. want to become an author. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make more money writing yeah, I'll, books. I'll write books. <laughs> yeah, I'll write books. That'll, that's my key to a fortune. Right well, you know, my, my, my regular day job, you know, I work as a, as a reporter at, uh, at Newsday in, in New York, and uh, you know, I just keep working. I mean, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's my day job, but it's the job, and uh, the books are like uh, uh, an extra an extra for me, and plus, it, you know, it helps to be working every day. You stay connected to the uh, law enforcement, to what's going on. So that, that that's that's good. And, you know, you know who still works? Uh, Nick Pileggi, the screenwriter. Yeah, he's got to be well into his eighties now, and uh, he says, "You know, I just keep doing it because I don't want to retire." And he grinds out scripts, and they get some of them get made, as you know, uh -huh. uh, into films. And uh, he said, "If it doesn't get made, at least they pay me." Yeah, and uh, uh, he said, "To survive in that business, you, you know, I gotta." I decided long ago, just don't worry about it. Uh, you get paid, that's good. Yeah. He's had look. He's had a good track record, uh, but it's nice that he's able to work. And uh, a lot of my colleagues still continue to work. It, it, uh, don't you find it keeps you more alive? I, I mean, oh, I can't yeah. even imagine retirement. Well, uh, yeah. Willie Nelson, are you going to retire? Is it retire from what? From what? Yeah, <laughs> from yeah. From I, what? I haven't worked a day in my life, to be perfectly honest with you, because it's. Well, 
That's because I think you probably like what you do. You betcha. You know? Yeah. And it's not work. Right. You know, you're not on the assembly line someplace. Uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, you think of it as something else. Yeah. If, like if, a, if I had to work, I'd, I'd oh, <laughs> in big I, I, I went to work briefly in my father's firm. It was a scrap metal business. Mm-hmm. It was a great motivator. I'll tell you, within a matter of uh, 24 months, I had a cable advertising company. <laughs> well, you know, there you go. And then you're your own boss. So you're also into things you like. I mean, you yourself, you've done books, you're on radio. Uh, uh, you know, the both of you, you're doing what you like, so it's not work. You know, they said and, that uh, uh, the average guy spends more time picking out a tie than he does a career. And they wind up stuck in some things they have no affinity for whatsoever. I'm in trouble. I haven't worn a tie since the late 60s. Well, I can tell by your wardrobe. <laughs> oh, look who's talking. I got uh, I got Ralph Lauren here doing the show. <laughs> I can't see us. Yeah. <laughs> what do they know? We could be sitting here in tuxedos. Yeah. Yeah, that's by the way they picture in our streaming, uh, gleaming streamlined studios here at Outlaw Radio. All tucked up and ready to go. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Uh, so the book that you're you're hyping right now, which you have have you finished this book that's coming out oh, in yeah. June? Yeah, it, it's done. I mean, it's in with the publisher. I'm waiting for the galleys to come back so I can, you know, just fine tune a couple of little things that I need to uh, retouch. Uh, it's Gotti's Boys. That's the uh, basically the you know the the people that uh, propelled John Gotti to power uh, back in the '80s and. Uh, uh, you have to walk back through history, but it's interesting in that, you know, I realized in doing it, uh, it comes out in July, by the way, uh, but it can be pre-ordered now, you know, in the usual places, Amazon or whatnot. Um, and I realized doing it right away how how much chance and uh, uh, had played a role in what happened in those things. Uh if certain things didn't go a certain way, or if certain somebody did something differently, how 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 events might have changed? Um, and, you know, Gotti was lucky in some sense. Events broke for him the right way. Uh, on the other hand, you know, they were destined for failure. Uh, they really were. Uh, the, the, think of it this way. They killed Castellano in December of 1985, around Christmas time, in Manhattan, height of the holiday season. Streets filled, right, in front of Stark's Steakhouse. And just think of how lucky they were that the cops weren't in the area, that they didn't get stopped, that they didn't have, if they couldn't do this today and get away with it like they did. Because today, post 9-11, we have... Surveillance cameras all over Manhattan. The thousands of cameras, you know, that are doing surveillance and video. They have license plate readers that read the license plates of cars, and they, combined with those, just those two things, they would have zeroed in to the shooters. They would have zeroed in to their cars that they got into to leave the scene. They would have tracked the license plates to, out to Brooklyn where they went. They would have made that case in, you know. Pretty quickly. Back then, they were lucky. You know, they just hit this period of history just right, where they were able to pull this off. Uh, and it took them a few years to put it together and to make a case, but they did. Uh, but uh, you know, they had to get lucky. Yeah, the feds had to get lucky. Uh, and that's that's part of the story. I mean, the story is you know how 
the FBI, you know, was just starting its investigation when there was a fatal plane crash of uh, Salvatore Ruggiero, who was a big heroin dealer. And that demise, his demise in that plane crash, set off a series of sort of very frantic actions among the Gambino family to find his assets and keep his drug business going. And it just so happened the FBI was just putting up his wiretaps and they were getting this information. And that helped to make the case, which ultimately, uh, you know, created a lot of problems for Gotti down the road. He himself, Gotti, was not a, a trafficker in drugs. And that was quite clear. And the FBI has been quite clear. And DEA's was quite clear about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, his people were making the money off drugs. And he had to have been willfully blind to this sort of turned a, a blind eye to it, even though he didn't like drugs, didn't want to traffic in them. He had to know where the money was coming from. That's one of the themes in the story that's that's emerging uh, in this. And it's a fascinating look back at the history and how the FBI put this together in terms of making a case. It's interesting. Uh, I've got some information that I'm not sharing on, uh, on shooters uh, on the Castellano thing. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we probably we probably have the same info. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there, I, you know, there's a there's a list. I mean, you can put together various lists of who was there. Uh, uh, and Gotti was across the street in a car with Sammy Garano. They didn't take part in the shooting, but they were watching. And you have people on the street, and you know. We'll, we'll see when my book comes out. We'll see how our list compares. Yeah, we'll see how, how our match up because there was a there was a meeting uh, in Long Island the day before. Uh, won't reveal the location right now, but there was a meeting the, the day before. They asked a friend of theirs if they could uh, use his house for a little meeting. Uh, he said, "Just go about your business, and I want to have a few associates over." And so they did. Yeah. And then the next morning, there were guys getting ready to go be helpful. <laughs> yeah, that, that the way that came together, by the way, uh, you know, the chutzpah that Gotti and his people had in pulling this off is truly amazing. Because you think about it, you're plotting to kill the boss of the family, and you're approaching people to take part in it who you don't know are, are going to rat you out and tell the boss, which would have cooked your goose. Uh, but it, they really did hit the right people to do this. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite amazing uh, that they themselves didn't get you know, killed before this happened. Yeah, it's still, a friend of mine still has one of those uh, hats, those uh, Russian hats. Oh, <laughs> uh, the Muscovite hats, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does he have the white coat instead of the beige coat or whatever? Yeah, I have to They ask. were dressed in beige coats, by the way, which was, uh, think about it, you know, it's just, to befuddle any eyewitness. Yeah. And then you had, um, uh, yeah, you got to think of it, yeah, the, the, the nerve to pull this off like that in the middle of a busy Manhattan street at Christmas time, Christmas season. Yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, you, they'd never date that again today. No, no. Uh, this, but there's there's ways around everything. I think there's uh, even with, with all the the sophisticated stuff, uh, 
Well, it's like with in the prisons, when a prisoner calls you from a, an institution, all those calls are taped. But who listens to them? You know? <laughs> uh, no, well, that's true. I mean, it's a large volume of tapes. Unless they have reason later on to go back yeah. over the archives, yeah, you're not necessarily going to know what's going on. Yeah, there was a, uh, in the Alaska uh, bail bomb conspiracy. Uh, they had to sit, this guy had to sit and listen to hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and hours of but now boring, horrifying conversations of particular mm-hmm. prisoners waiting to hear one one phrase that would tip him off that they were talking about building a bomb. But for mm-hmm. days, he had to listen to all this other crap before. They got it, though, didn't they? Yeah, finally got mm-hmm. it. So how's that science project your daughter's working on? She needs some yeah, help. The, Go to Radio Chat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Well, that, you know, well, that's... Yeah. that's any, and any number of things can go wrong on these things, too, you know. I mean... Uh, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it all breaks the right way. I'll tell you, it's a, as you got into this from the 70s on, did you start developing relationships with people within the mob who would bring you stories? Uh, nobody would bring me stories. There were people who, uh, uh, you know, I could talk to who were guarded. You know, they would tell me things that... Uh, were either opinion or facts, you know, uh, cloaked in opinion or, um, you know, that verify certain things, but they wouldn't uh, um, tell you in advance. Who's gonna they, they didn't, yeah, no, there was nothing like that. No, nothing like that. Could you call for verification on a story you heard? Um, no. Now, most of these people, you know, it's difficult to do that in a timely fashion because they were in custody. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of people were on the street. Um, uh, you know, they just really would talk very elliptically about things, and you never really know. You know, the, uh, with dealing with law enforcement, which, of course, I do also write in true crime, is that if the cops don't aren't criminals, <laughs> if they don't think like criminals, they get things wrong. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Man, and I don't, know, I don't know if they do this on purpose or if it's just faulty thinking. Like The, the example I, I, I use is the, the yaks, which the FBI thought they had a handle on uh, one time. And the information was so wrong that it's just amazing to look back at it and go, boy, did they have this wrong. Uh, now that we know more about it, they, I mean, it was almost cooked up in their, their imagination. You know, they're putting leakages together that didn't actually exist. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you, you, they're probably, you know, if you go through your your work and, and your past reporting, you'll probably see a lot of cases of that. Uh, the FBI, years ago, years ago, in the 40s, 50s, they were dealing a lot in gossip. And even in the 60s, you know, a lot of their intelligence was gossip. And they'll readily admit this, you know, it was stuff that sort of half-baked to stuff that they heard or they got out of the newspapers. You know? That's, that could be a mistake right there. <laughs> Don't believe everything you read in the paper. We're going to take a 60-second break to rearm ourselves. <laughs> we'll be right back with Anthony M. DiStefano, mafia expert on True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio.
take your smoking, drinking, interrupting obsession with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device. And it's all free. Just go to your friendly app store and search for Outlaw Radio. Then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it. It's free. Listen free on the road, in your car, at the beach, or in your backyard. It's all free from Outlaw Radio. This is Buddy Twist. Saying goodnight from Hollywood. And now, back to True Crime Uncensored, formerly hosted by Burl Bear and Don Waldman. But Don Waldman is dead. True Crime Unsplittered, Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Yeah. Yeah, Mark C.G. Burr. C.G. Burr. He's not here. (laughs) He's sick today, unfortunately. Hey, this is the time of the uh, the show when I encourage people to buy buy all my books. Uh, Also, buy all of uh, Anthony Mistopoulos' books. He's got I don't know how many books uh, you got all together, Anthony, but I got them all. (laughs) Eight eight organized crime books in total. How many? Eight organized crime books. Uh, Any disorganized crime ones? Uh, no, maybe the writing. <laughs> uh, my latest uh, release is, is is getting old now. Uh, it's, been, it's been two years since I've had one out. Uh, Betrayal in Blue, the true story of the cocaine cops of the NYPD. Uh, Michael Dodd and Ken Urell, uh, supposedly the two most corrupt cops in NYPD history. Although, if you look back at history, I think there were some that were even more corrupt. But uh, it's the story behind the documentary, The Seven Five, the things that you didn't see in the documentary you can read in the book, uh, which is based on uh, Ken Urell's actual memoir, which I must tell you, when they raided Ken's house, his memoirs, his diary with it, just was a beautifully written confession of everything they did. They didn't know what it was, and they just tossed it in the air, and it was pages were all over the floor. And so there it was. <laughs> That's 7 5. That was, I remember that case. Yeah. I remember, I remember seeing it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if you've seen the documentary, read the book. Uh, the book's the book's got stuff there you won't find in the documentary. And it explains something that, you know, if you watch the documentary, it appears as if Ken Urell ratted out Michael Dowd, uh, which he didn't. Uh, they were both arrested at the same time. They were both uh, out on bail. They were both facing uh, the time they're going to get. And uh, Ken was faced with, uh, I call it Sophie's Choice in a Squad Car. Uh, if he uh, kept his mouth shut and let his uh, partner do what his partner wanted to do, as part of it, he's going to wind up dead or perhaps doing life in prison. If he becomes a cooperating witness, he can keep his partner from getting killed and keep his partner from doing life in prison. Uh, but he's going to be looked at as if he'd done something bad. So, uh, you know, there's two forms of betrayal here. Which one do you choose? You let your partner get killed or spend life in prison or do you stop him? And uh, that was the choice he had to make. And uh, it's a lot more clear in the book than it is in the documentary. But uh, you're invited to buy it. You can buy, buy all my books. I'm in favor of that when you're uh, buying Anthony's books. And we both have uh, some new ones coming out very soon. So save up that money. Put it on your shopping list to buy all of our books uh, on audio or in print or as e-books. Your books are e-books also, aren't they, Anthony? They are, yeah. yeah. E-book, audio, and you know, traditional uh, print. Yeah, I like holding it in traditional print, but I also like having the e-books that I can, you know, carry around and listen to the audio books in the car. So I wind up having, like, three copies of everything. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, sometimes, you know, it works out that way. I, if I traveled more by plane, I'd probably use more e-book. But uh, uh, a conventional book is fine. 
Uh, on the car, you know, you use the audio. Uh, I like I like that because it breaks up the, the, the commute. Yeah, it does. But a lot of people use that for the commute. They listen to the audio books, and then they're all upset because they got to go into work, and they were right in the middle of a chapter that they really liked. <laughs> they sit there in the parking garage waiting until the last minute to leave, which they kind of get a kick out of, especially if they paid good money to get one of our books. <laughs> More power to them. That there's only so many ways their life can go if they are a dedicated mafioso mobster. They're either going to wind up shot in the back of the head by their best friend, <laughs> or, uh, you know, they're going to be in prison. What are the, what well, there's, are the a, there's an old saying, um, uh, you know, only a friend can hurt you. Yeah. Uh, if you're in the business and you're in the mob, it's going to be a friend. Now, you mentioned Carmine Lombardozzi. I picked up an old, old file just now where he was at the Appalachia meeting uh, back in 1957. And he was, uh, yeah, stevedore on the Brooklyn docks, and uh, he was affiliated with all these, all these guys. Carmine, he was a really big power on the docks. Fulton Fish Market too, is what I recall. Where the money? You go where the money is. Or wherever it was, right? I mean, prohibition uh, must have been a godsend to these guys. Who's that? Prohibition was a godsend to these guys. Oh, it was, it was the thing that was steroids for the mob. You know, it's like, you know, there was a, a willing, ready, large market with the public for booze. You know, they didn't, people didn't care about prohibition. It was probably one of the worst you know, national policies uh, that have ever come out of Congress. But it was a ready market wherever you went. And, you know, they say there was... Estimates about the speakeasy in New York was anywhere from fifteen to thirty thousand. Um, that's an enormous market. What's the, so well, it's the same coming. today. That's why you have that group, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. It's the same thing with the other uh, intoxicants. You know, if there weren't so much money in corruption, they'd be legal. You know, the one thing, suppose, one thing about these guys is they're fascinating. They are fascinating, and that's undoubtedly what kept you going. Is the fascination? Yeah, and I, th I think you're. I think you're right. I think you know. Like I, we get jaded about this. We said, oh, it's another, you know, another character, another mafiosi. But people are interested. Uh, they are interested. I, my one of my editors once said to me, he thinks the the mafia, the mafia story, the mafia genre, is is like the, the western genre of, you know, for, for so many years, years ago, where you have, you know, sort of good and evil uh, battling it out, characters who uh, are nefarious and questionable and uh, pushing the, the frontier of, uh, of crime, uh, you know, it's a morality tale that, you know, people relate to. So it may be like that, I, and I have to think more about that, but... Uh, it was an interesting analogy. Well, it seems to me that as we had uh, what uh, Al Capone's niece on here a few times, because all they were doing was giving the people what they wanted. You know, they wanted a booze, they gave a booze. They want prostitution, you had a little sex, sure, I'll take that. Oh, Thank that's you. still going on. And they just new. give the people what they want. There's zero it, new It's there. like I read a report, uh, the federal uh, DEA, that they were so upset. As fast as we make a drug illegal is how fast the chemists find another way of doing, giving people a drug that they enjoy. And it wasn't that it was harmful. 
It was that people enjoyed it. That's what we've got to stop. Well, you know, it, it's right. They're giving people what they want. On the other hand, they're also taking. I mean, some of these extortion rackets. Oh, that's so know, good. They're, they're not giving people what they want. They're taking. I'm not a big fan of extortion, by the way. Remember the twenty dollars you owe me. Thank you. You trying to extort that money out of me? Yeah, well, that's forty <laughs> bucks to me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I owe you more than forty bucks easily. Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, parole easily. Yeah, seventy-five. Uh, it is seventy-five. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, Anthony, the book. Let's let's talk about top the, hoodlum. Top hoodlum. Uh, available now. Available now at the usual, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, other fine bookstores. Uh, uh, it's on, you know, available not only in book form, but on, I guess, the electronic version, the ebook, and also audio. You know, people sometimes buy the audio versions. I like the I audio. have an audio copy yeah. for my car. So. Yeah, there you go. It's, so it's, it's available. It's out there. Uh, there are several things about Frank that. We take for granted now, but at the time, were quite innovative and counterintuitive to the old guard. Uh, how did how did Frank organize everything that made things different? Well, Frank, um, how did he do that? Well, I think he saw uh, well, he saw the potential in things like using airplanes. Radio, ship to shore radio. This is what we're talking about bootlegging. But he also saw the the benefits of political connections, and he molded them in New York City, and they became uh, a person who was powerful in democratic politics in an unofficial way in New York City. So he he became. He saw the potential for that working to his advantage. The, uh, the business of him wanting to legitimize, uh, you know, we always, I, I refer to The Godfather as the greatest mob movie ever, and the story is incredible, but it, it grabbed from reality. Uh, and in The Godfather, he always saw them becoming a legitimate family. Is that where that came from, that storyline of Frank wanting uh, to go legit? Uh, I, I think, to some extent, you know, look, Puzo once said in an interview that I read that uh, the inspiration for The Godfather was his mother, uh, Puzo's mother, meaning that the, she, the way she carried on, the way she talked to people. But I think in terms of, in terms of the story, uh, the character, I think, is a composite of Costello, uh, uh, Gambino, and, and, and Joe Profacci. Um, so, to the extent that Costello strived to be legitimate, as did Profacci and the other Gambino, I think that's where this comes from uh, in The Godfather. That that kind of but they really they really did want to become legitimate and get out of it. Well, I think Frank did. Yep. Yeah, certainly I think Frank did. The others I can't speak to. Right. I was like Mario Puzo's statement where he said, if I would have known The Godfather was going to be such a hit, I would have written a better book. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny, actually. Well, how do you, you know... Uh, you never so, know. You never know which book is... You just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Coppola, um, went, uh, after The Godfather, a studio asked him to, to go uh, and take a class in script writing. <laughs> no, hang on, hang on. 
This is, you know, and so he went to UCLA to uh, uh, take closer. a class in script writing. And the instructor got out and said, okay, we're going to talk about how to write a script. And we're going to use hey. this script because it's perfect. And out comes the Godfather. And he got <laughs> out. So where do you go from there? Yeah. Yeah, what do you do? Hey, what's your best-selling book? Um... Gosh, you know, the first book I wrote, the, the the Last Godfather, still is selling and still kicking out some royalties. Uh, the best one, gosh, you know, it's hard to say because uh, you know this is just out. Uh, Costello is just out. Uh, I would say, um, I would say possibly the Big Heist. Uh, That's a good one. book. That's a good book. Yeah. What a good, good for you on that one. Now what? I got, I got to change the topic totally in our last few minutes here. Totally off, different topic entirely. This new, being as you know a lot about human trafficking, right? I think this SOPA, whatever the hell it is, law they came up with recently. You know what I'm talking about? Now, give me a, a brief. Summary. This is where if you have a newspaper and you run an ad. You shouldn't run because the people placing the ad are being dishonest. You can take the blame for it if you're the newspaper. Well, how do you know? Which, yeah, that's a damn good question. How this thing has gotten any legs to it, I don't know. But it has just raised hell in the uh, sex industry, in the adult industry, terribly. And uh, I just kind of wondered if you were familiar with it and knew the hell people were going through trying to place ads. Thanks for coming and visiting with us. Anthony, we'll, uh, we'll do this again, please. Uh, it is always fascinating to hear your take on this. Always fun. Top Hoodlum is the name of the book by Anthony Epistopino. He's not the guy who writes the Jesus books. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. Hey, Burl. Hi, Burl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence Live in the Lightning Lounge, right here on Allen Radio Live.com.